kind of sensitive in our world. Anytime you talk about relationships, and especially marriage relationship, the most significant relationship to us, it can be a little touchy. Um, but we're going to walk through biblically, how did God design this whole thing? How did he want us to walk through this? And what, is, what happens when it starts to go wrong? And so we're going to do that over the next four weeks. And we're starting this week with a message we're calling, Before You Say, I Do. So before you ever say, I do, and you get married, what are the things you need to be processing and thinking through? Now, some of you are married, and right away you're like, there were things? I was... There, I, Yeah, that's how it goes sometimes. The most significant decision we make in life outside of our salvation is the person we marry. And it's amazing how often we give very little thought on the, is this the right person before we get so emotionally attached. We're going to walk through a few things like that. But before we do that this morning, I want to walk you a little bit through just kind of the theological background of how God designed his creation, specifically his human creation. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be. I'm going to overview just a a snippet from chapter 1, but Genesis chapter 2, and I want to just highlight a little bit of this, because here's the thing. If you have thoughts on relationship, marriage, all this kind of things, but you leave out the creation account of God's word, then you've left out your whole foundation. It would be like you going to build your house right now and refusing to put any type of foundation down. You just kind of started building off whatever ground was there. And so for us, when we think relationally, we think of how God created us and designed us biblically, and we start all the way from the beginning, and that's our foundation from where we go from there. We find that in God's Word, if you've ever read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, you've probably found that there's actually two different creation accounts. There's two accounts there. And so if you've ever read them and thought, I'm a little confused here. Chapter 1 says this. Chapter 2 says this. Uh, Is this a contradictory kind of thing? Or how does this go down? It's actually just two different writers giving the same account. One account is written from kind of a standard Hebrew poetry style. A lot of repetitious type of phrases in there. It's also a very respectful way that the first writer is writing. He uses the word Elohim to refer to God, a very respectful title of God. The second, uh, chapter two, the second writer is actually writing this account from a very personal view, and he just uses more conversational tone as he's writing here. We find that he uses the word Yahweh to describe God, which is a much more personal term for somebody who was Hebrew. We don't think of it that way when we use the term Hebrew, but, or excuse me, the term Yahweh, but we didn't grow up in this time as a Hebrew person. It was a deeply personal and very respectful word to God. And so that's why we get a little bit different view here. If you know the creation account, you'll know in chapter 1 it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our, our image to be like us. They'll reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the animals of the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then he blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. You can read it. It's almost a a bit matter-of-fact there as he's writing uh, that and telling you. Now, you'll notice the key thing. He says in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now in chapter 2, in the second author, we're going to get a much more detailed view of how God created here. Now, if you walk through the Christian account, you will know that the very last thing that God created on this earth before he rested was you. It, It was us. It was his humans. It's almost as if saying, when God created you, he finally, he was able to step back and say, now this, this is right. This is what I was after. Not that he was attempting to create you throughout the other days of the week, but that when he finished you, he said, now this is what I was really, really wanted to finish off with. And maybe even the creation of you caused him to need his rest. I don't know. We don't really think God needed rest. But we do know biblically, after the creation of human, he rested. You're the prize. Human beings. The prize creation of God. 
And so in chapter 2, we find uh, this, this uh, creation account which, which flows and gives a little bit more detail. But when it comes down now, what chapter 1 just simply overviewed the whole day and said just simply, hey, male and female, he created them, right? True, God created them. Chapter 2 gives us a little more detail of how this went down. We find in chapter 2, verse 18, it starts this way. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now, I know some of you, some of you men, you just heard that word helper and you wanted to you know, grunt in excitement. That's, it doesn't mean like, you know, helper in the sense of this is the person who does everything for you. You know, laundry, cook, clean, all that. That's not what it means. It is a, a suitable companion. This is the thing that perfectly fits you. And so when God said, it's not good for this being I've created to be alone, I, they, this person needs companionship. And so God had a plan on how he was going to do this. So God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each of them. Well, just his, his tasks, I guess, that God gave him, all the animals. I mean, could you imagine having to name all the animals when they came to you? I'm sure it was very creative and exciting in the beginning. You know, hippopotamus, rhinoceros, you know, whatever. And it probably got really monotonous as it went by. Fly. Um, You know, get off me, bugging me, bug. You know, I can't imagine. Anyhow, so he gives the names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals, but there is no helper just right for him. Do you know what God would say? Look, of all your companions out there, of all the, the animals that have been uh, helpers to man, the horse and the ox, um, all these animals, your favorite little doggy, they're not suitable helpers, suitable companions for you. So what did God do? Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and I, he brought her to man. And what did Adam say? Whoa, man! <laughs> he's pretty excited. And he says, at last, with the exclamation, at last. He's pretty excited. The man said, this, bone, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And then this verse, and we'll come back to it. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. It's an interesting account here because when you start to break it down in Hebrew and you start to look at some of these words, you'll see a couple things show up. One thing that's interesting is before woman was created, before this this rib was taken and woman was formed, we find that the word for Adam, that the Adam, as it said, the word there is actually a plural word. Makes it makes it sound a little weird that before Adam was ever Adam and Eve here, before this union, the name Adam was already plural. It was already plural. Meaning, when God created Adam, he created Adam like complete, whole. But there was something missing. It was companionship. It was somebody else that you could share life with and interact with and be committed to and gel with. And so what God said is, well, it's not good first for the Adam, this plural being, to be one. I need to pull woman. And now there were two humans that God cr- created, one from another. And then he says, now the union of these two, that's the completeness. That's the companion. He didn't find it when he was naming, you know, off the animals, you know, the deer and the donkeys. and the, He didn't find that. But in woman, he now had this. And from there, we find that God calls the plural, he uses more the term of the union and the marriage of this Adam, this Eve, this husband, this wife, and now this connectedness together. Can you see from the beginning how significant to God marriage is? And you might say, well, this is the very beginning. I mean, how do we know, you know, what marriage, what is marriage? Isn't marriage you just love each other? Well, we find that the writer in Hebrew even understands when he writes this because he actually uses the Hebrew term for wife. That's why it shows up there. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united in one. Because God said, look, your mom and dad are wonderful. 
that's not the companionship I designed you for. I designed you for one day to leave them and be married and to be united and to cleave together with, as the Hebrew writer tells us, with wife. He's writing it to the man with wife. And they have this connection. That's how important God's design and his creation was from the very beginning. Sometimes when we walk through the law and we really like to use verses in the law to argue for, against, all this kind of stuff, there's always that, that, that saying that we can say, well, yeah, but that was the law of the Old Testament. Can I just for a second just throw that out all to the side? We don't throw it out of God's scripture, but for the sake of our argument this morning, can we just put that to the side and understand this is creation. This is creation. This is God saying, I formed this, I made this, and this is how I created it for this purpose. And this union is found in its perfect form. It is found in this way. Now, if you understand that foundation, and then you start to walk through the Old Testament, and you start to understand when God says, I like that, I definitely don't like that, and we start to walk through the Old Testament, we understand God is seeing everything through the lens of his creation. Everything he says he sees through the lens of his creation. And so it's so important that we have a, a proper understanding from the very beginning. So if you are this morning not married, can I just say to you for the next few minutes, if you are looking at saying, I want to one day be married, you're not all saying that, but I want to be, one day be married, then God is saying, look, I have a perfect way, I have a perfect companionship and connection that I've designed from creation in the very beginning, and I would like to walk you through that plan, and I would like for you to, I would like for you to be able to uh, experience that for the rest of your life. If that's you this morning, God's saying, I got it for you, but there's a couple questions you need to ask yourself. Married people for a second, how many of you wish you had asked a question or two before you jumped into marriage? Maybe you've battled through it and you're tracking pretty well, but you're like, man, I wish I'd just asked the question. We could have formulated a plan before, you know, we got married that day. It would have been pretty good. There's questions you need to ask yourself before you're ready to jump in to this commitment. Listen, marriage is not like buying a car. It's not like, hey, just go drive a bunch of models. When we bought our minivan, I, bought every, I drove everything out there. Um, and then I bought it, and then a few years later, guess what I did? I don't really want a minivan anymore. I want a Suburban. So what did I do? I started finagling everyone I could to figure out how do I trade my minivan to get a Suburban and make this deal work for me. That's not marriage. We treat marriage that way a lot. But when we look at God's design, God says, that's not what I've designed for you in marriage. Can I say to you just for a second before we continue from this point, those of you who have been married and your marriage broke up, and you divorced, and you remarried, or maybe you're, you're right now dating, or maybe you're, you're not dating at all, but you're just single right now. This is not a, a message this morning for you to feel bad about your past. You know why? Because God can redeem where you're at at this moment and take you on the most wonderful ride you'll ever have the rest of your life if you want to lock in and commit to him and his ways. So not for a moment do I want you to dwell on your past and walk out of here feeling discouraged in any way, shape, or form. Um, but as you're moving forward, these are wonderful questions now to ask yourself this morning. If you happen to get in here and you didn't get a sermon note, this is going to be important for you to, to fill these things out because I'm not going to hit everything. You might want to write in the blank on, a, on something. So slip up your hand. Um, Richard will run over. Last night, uh, I dressed as a cowboy and I actually ro- wore Richard's boots. I have deep respect for him now. Just moving... <laughs> Just moving around here, handing these out in those boots. I don't quite know how he does it, but uh, it's impressive. Hey, um, some of us have thoughts on marriage. And uh, we realize when we get married, it's different. It's different. So we we thought we wanted to entertain you with a funny little video that showed this better than we could say it. So take a look at this. on the back this table. Moment, yeah. Thanks. My whole life. I'm just glad that's over. Now I have to show up. I'm going to plan out every detail. Our wedding will be perfect. The honeymoon is going to be epic. 
There you go. Some of you, you like, weren't, do I laugh at that in church? Or do I laugh at that? I wasn't quite sure. Now, I, I know some of you were like, uh, uh, yeah, that hit a little bit more close to home, even though you were, you were laughing, thinking through some of those things. There are questions that need to be asked before you, you enter into a relationship. Now, you might have said, I need to ask questions before I get married. I'm telling you this morning, before you get yourself emotionally attached to a relationship that could end in marriage... You need to start asking these questions and putting these things in place now. Now, I didn't become a Christian until I was 16 years old. I was just, uh, just in my junior year of high school. But do you know that for some odd, weird reason, call it God's kind of sense of humor, his grace, I don't know. But I started praying for my wife in eighth grade. Started praying for her. So that means almost three to four years I was praying for my wife, every single day, I said, Lord, wherever she's at, whatever she's doing, just, you know, be with her and build her up and, and whatever. I, I can't remember the words exactly I said, too. I didn't really know a whole lot about the prayer thing. But I prayed for my spouse during that time. You've got to start thinking in advance. And here's some questions that you want to ask. Here's the number one question. What does it mean to you to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean for you to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to that other person to be a follower of Christ? Notice I didn't say, do they go to church? Do they call themselves a Christian? You know, do they own a Bible? Do they believe in God? I believe those are not good indicators of whether somebody really lives a life that follows Jesus Christ. And so we find sometimes when we don't ask this question, we find often we... We just assume if somebody's a Christian, then they're really living it up for Jesus Christ, right? And there's no issue in their life. Can I just tell you, all you need to do right now is go pop in your car, actually wait till the end of the sermon, and drive to the nearest Christian college you want and just spend the week at there, at that Christian college, and you will see Christians that are really struggling with their faith. You'll see Christians that they're there because mom and dad sent them there. 
And you'll see Christians that are following Jesus, making a certified commitment in their life that this is what I'm after. The title Christian does not necessarily do it. So you got to ask yourself, does this person, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does that mean to you? Because if you don't, you get a mismatch. Here's what the Bible says about it. This might be a familiar verse if you ever went through a youth program. It says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Can I just tell you that I heard that verse from the moment I stepped on the youth group when somewhere around 16 years old, my junior year of high school, I heard that like, like into college, all the way through college, but I never heard anyone actually tell me what it means. So in my view what I thought when people said don't be yoked together, my only view was of an egg. And I thought, how, what, how did, what does this mean to not be yoked with somebody? You know, you throw it in the frying pan, you mix up the yolk and the egg whites, and you can't separate. Is that, what is this metaphor that people keep discussing? To my surprise, late my senior year of college, I learned that this had nothing to do with eggs whatsoever, that it had to do with, with oxen. Who knew? I didn't know at the time. I know you're saying, Tom, how could you not know that? I I don't know. I don't know, but I didn't. So here's the the picture that's happened is if you take your two ox and you put a yoke between them, a wooden yoke that, that harnesses them together across their shoulders, that they actually can now work together and plow a field. One ox can do a pretty significant job. Two ox four to seven times more production if you yoke two of them together. Here's what I didn't know, though. You can't just put any two ox together. It's not like you can say, hey, put this one together, put this one together, stick them, yeah, they'll be good. They don't all work in tandem together. So, so you have to put them together that have the same gait, the same temperament, the same drive in their effort. They can work the same amount of time and when you put them together that way and you yoke two that are connected like that, then you get your production. In fact, um, and I learned this this week. This is great. Richard Lau, I hope you're really proud of me here on this. But I learned this week that if you put two ox together, oxen, I don't even know how the proper phrase, what, how do you say it? Ox, oxen, am I doing good? Just keep going, just keep going. If you put two of these animals together that aren't compatible, you actually can produce less work than one can produce. That's amazing to me that two big, strong animals not working together can actually blow the whole project. And then I think about it, and how many times do we in life say things like, I'll just do it myself. I'll just do it myself. They're just getting in the way anyway. The metaphor here, God is saying, what connection Does a believer, somebody connected, following, passionate about their walk with Jesus Christ, with somebody who has no interest in following Jesus, what connection could they possibly have on this level of relationship? It's a mismatch, and and you're going to have struggle with it. Two people married together that are striving for the Lord, it is amazing what they do. You know how I know this? Because for 19 years, I've been able to watch my in-laws, who I would say, for me, they're just the epitome of this. And they're in their mid-70s now. And one time, uh, my father-in-law once said, you know, the last 10 years of your ministry is going to be the most productive in your life. And my first thought was, yeah, um, I'm cranking it out right now. <laughs> so, but then I watch him, and I'm like, it's true. The production you can have once you've learned all your lessons, you know, over the 75 years, and you can just be so poignant. He can get away with saying things that I can never get away with saying. But I see them two pulling together and being productive together. That's the word picture here. The number one thing you've got to ask yourself is, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Because if you don't, you're going to get a mismatch, and you have to, at all costs, Avoid the spiritual mismatch. Avoid it. You're in for trouble. You're in for trouble. Because here's what happens most often. If somebody's really striving for the Lord or or they feel like they are and somebody is not quite interested, but, you know, they're really cute, and you get together, and then then at the beginning you're like, I I know he, she's probably not the right person for me. They don't really have the same belief system. But guess what happens? 
We get so emotionally tied to it, right? We get so goo-goo over it. And once we're so emotionally attached, it's hard for us to really think rationally. We think we're thinking rationally, but the ones around us could really tell you the story. And guess what happens? You might lift this person up, pop into church every once in a while. Maybe you own a Bible now or whatever. But you're going to find yourself sinking down. And eventually you're going to get on the same level. Where is that level going to be? I've known one uh, marriage. They've been married one more year, actually, than Sri and I have. One marriage I know that started off completely on the other side. And it was the wife who was really striving in her walk. He was going to jail. Um, and <laughs> that's true. And, but she started visiting, and somehow there was this emotional connection against her parents' wishes they got married. Today, that guy is so thriving in the Lord, it's amazing to see. It's a rarity that it happens. Avoid the spiritual mismatch. It's the number one question you need to ask. The other thing that happens when you ask this question, it gives you a strong evaluation of your own walk with the Lord, your own commitment to Christ. What does it look like for you in your life? Because guess what happens? When you get married— and you start thinking for two or talking for two, and then a kid comes along, a second or third, whatever happens for you, uh, I don't know. Whatever was really central is probably what's going to stick out in your life. But if it wasn't, if you were kind of playing it central over here as part of the dating process, and maybe early on in the marriage, it starts to fade away entirely. Church connection starts to fade away. You get kids, you get busy, and before long, you know, just getting to church, I'm just too busy to get to church. Just, I'm just, just too busy to be a part of what's going on in church. I'm too busy to be part of, you know, serving or whatever. Those things start to drift away. Can I just tell you this morning, if in your family you're feeling like, man, I'm just, I'm just way too busy now, let me suggest to you that it's about, it really comes down to your, your spiritual priority as well in your life. Not just what does my time look like, but what is my spiritual priority? You form those things now by asking this question. And can I tell you before we move on, this is the most important question, bar none. The other three or four that we walk through, not as important as this question right here. So let's jump to the second one. This is important. Do you think it's okay to have sex before you get married? It's an important question to ask. The Christian faith, the biblical Christian faith, is about as countercultural as anything I know. And when it comes to talking about the term sex, it's amazingly countercultural, especially here in the U.S. And, and where we're at in our thinking currently. I would like to tell you that there is just this wide gap of the Christian's practice on the side of sexuality and the non-Christians, but stats just don't tell us that. It means this, the biblical audience, those of us, you and I, that, that say we're believers in Jesus Christ, followers of God's word, we just have turned the volume down when it comes to his passages in scriptures relating to sex. But it's an important question to ask this morning. Why? Because you notice in the creation account, all the way back to the beginning, that God superposes in there that this is the one person, your spouse, that you'll have sexual intimacy for the rest of your life. This is the person because it creates a union that I haven't designed for anybody else. Adam didn't find it in an animal. I designed it just for this marriage. And you're not going to find it anywhere else. It brings a union to you that is my plan and you won't find it outside. And so we have to ask ourselves that question. Take a look at, at Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 27. Solomon's actually writing here. He says, Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? So it is with a man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished. Somebody who sleeps with another man's wife, somebody who has sex outside of God's design here, somebody else's wife. Tell you what, anyone, anyone who you're not married to is potentially somebody else's wife. And here he, he's saying here, can you do that? 
and not get hurt. And so Solomon speaks so clear on that. But here in Proverbs, if you flip a page, verse 7, he says, So she seduced him with her pretty speech and enticed him with her flattery. He followed her at once like an ox going to the slaughter. I mean, hear this metaphor of him saying, you, you get your, you know, your emotions going or you, know, you get your sex drive rearing up and you just keep going and going. It's like the ox being led to the slaughter there. It's very strong imagery that God uses to describe, to say, as we start in creation, to continue to say all through the Old Testament new, I have a plan, I have a design for where sex is perfect. But outside of that design, you're going to run into all kinds of difficulties in that path. My favorite survey, 2004 survey out of the University of Chicago. They sent 200,000 surveys out for people to fill in and send back. They got in about 2,200. So a big drop off there in number they sent. But 2,200 they got back. And the survey was basically this. They wanted to know who had sex before marriage, the husband or the wife, both of you or none of you. So those were the categories there. We want to know that, and then we want to know, have you been divorced? That was really the simple survey that came back. You know what they found out? The highest number of couples that were divorced, almost topping 60%, were those who had sex before they were married. It's weird to think it, because for most of us, we buy into what the media tells us, TV, movies, what else. you got to kind of try this whole thing out, Right? I mean, what if the person you marry is not very good at sex? Are you going to live with that the rest of your life? And so we buy into this thought, well, I've got to kind of try this out, and I've got to kind of go out, and, you know, it's just naturally where a relationship ends. If you ever watch an 80s action movie, um, I can break, basically break down the whole flow of the movie, and I can almost tell you the point where, you know, the lead guy, tough guy, is going to have sex with the girl in the movie. I mean, like every 80s movie kind of flowed during the same pattern because they just say this is the natural flow. This is just how it happens, you know. One date, two date, three dates, here we go. But God's word says something entirely different. And do you know what the stats of this survey? They just don't pan out to follow what Hollywood has to say at all. In fact, this is an interesting one. Of those surveyed that had not had sex, neither husband nor wife, and were you divorced, do you know what the percentage was of of ones that were actually divorced? They have no idea because they got 2,200 back, not one came back. Not one came back with somebody who was, was celibate on both sides. Not one came back. There were two virgin, virgins talking that way. They couldn't even find somebody that responded to the survey to put in of 200,000 sent out. That just baffles me in that. Or you take it on the other side, and you say, well, you, there's just nobody out there that could say, Yes, we were both virgins, and we were divorced, and they just didn't feel like they had anything to fill out. I don't know. They haven't concluded what that meant in the survey, but it's still an interesting point there. You know, when we look at this uh, in our day and age, there's another thing we we deal with often. We think, well, living together, if we're going to eventually get married, what's the big deal here? Remember in the very beginning of God's word, what we walked through, he said, you leave your father, mother, you cleave to your spouse, to your wife there. God's design was leave mom and dad, marry. And then sexual activity, free, wide open, go for it. Rest of your life is how God's design was. And he said, within this umbrella, you're going to find amazing freedom. You're going to find amazing joy and satisfaction and fun. You get outside of this, it's going to really start to get cloudy for you. And rough things can come. Do you know that uh, in a survey, recent survey, 69% now of couples live together before they get married. 69%. I was a little surprised. I didn't know it was that high. But of those 69%, they are 50% more likely to divorce than those who didn't live together. That doesn't make any sense in, our, in what we see on TV and, and what we think in our culture that the divorce rate would be higher. But the stats just don't back it up. 
God says, well, of course, this is my plan and this is my design that you leave mom and dad and you would marry together. In our day and age, basically, we've reached a point sexually where we're not quite at the point where we say anything goes, but we're not far from it as well. We're pretty wide open. In fact, we like to use a phrase in our culture. We like to say, well, if I'm not hurting anyone, what's the big deal? But we notice God's word as he walks through it. His, his overarching, uh, his overarching uh, uh, line there is not, are you hurting anyone? It's, are you following me? Are you obeying me? Are you receiving what I have to offer? Are you giving what I have to offer a shot in your life? Or are you just kind of making your own way, your own decision? Because if you would hang on and follow my plan, I got amazing life for you. And, and I know you can't quite even understand how much more amazing it would be for you. But if you just walk with me and see, you'd find that. We find that in God's word, there's amazing things that happens when we desire to please ourselves. Romans 1, 18, 30, uh, through, uh, excuse me, 18 through 32 walks through it. We're, we're going to, in the interest of time, we're going to let you walk through some of that on your own. But the Bible basically says that because of their sexual immorality, God just, or because of their disobedience, God just turned them over to their own devices. And that out of turning them over to their own devices, do you know what they did? Sexual immorality started to come. And it was rampant throughout now, this morning, if you're one that says, yeah, that's right, Tom. In fact, that passage, that passage goes on to say that there was homosexual activity going on there, and God hates that. I want to make sure you read the whole passage. You know what God hates, period? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Anything that would defile his plan as we walk through in the book of Genesis, his creation plan, anything that would defile that plan, all the way through, God says, that's not my plan. The passage actually says, and it's very few times that God's word says this, but it actually says that God's anger burned here, and he turned them over. And on their own, they chose to continually and even do more is what we find. So before you say, hey, this is just our homosexual passage, this is what I cling to, this is what I like to Facebook or whatever, every sexual immorality. Men, if you're locked into pornography, this passage is for you. And it affects your your marriage and affects your sexuality in your marriage. Anything. If you're not married today and you're engaged in sexual activity, unmarried today, God's word says, look, My anger burns against that. That's not how I designed you. I've got so much more for you if you would just, if you just hang on, if you just wait, if you'd put it in the proper context is what he would say here. Any. Read through that passage and make sure you read all the way through it, each verse on your own. What happens when we live a life that pleases God, we find? Well, it's a different picture. First Thessalonians, if you want to take a look at that, verse uh, chapter 4, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You, will, uh, you live this way already, and we encourage you to do it even more. Do you remember what we taught you by the authority of Jesus Christ. God's will for you is to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God in his ways. Never harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins as he has solemnly warned you about. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. You can see how God has attached this word holy to sexual purity as well. Do you think it's okay to have sex before you get married? This is an important question, important question to ask. Somebody came to me once, and we're going years back, and they said, you know, this guy I'm kind of interested in, um, we, you know, we're, we're kind of considering maybe a more serious relationship. Marriage wasn't in the picture yet, but kind of considering a more serious relationship. She said she was a virgin, and, and she knows he's had multiple partners, and would it be okay for her to continue this relationship? We walk through the whole process of God's redemptive power and what the blood of Christ did on the cross and where was he at in his own spiritual journey and where was he at in his forgiveness and, and that type of thing. 
But even despite that, which was all correct theologically, she still had to wrestle with the idea of, is there that something she wants to bring into her marriage life? It'll always be there for him. It always happened. He's forgiven. He'll go to heaven. There's something which she wanted to bring in. So I said, you just need to think through and, and process that as well. It's still there. It's a question you just have to ask before you get married here. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Can you see now, three different books of the Bible, can you see now this sexual issue is very, very significant to God? Let's move on. These last couple I want to let you know um, come from Henry Cloud. He writes a book, How to Keep a Date Worth Keeping. It's an old I had to get a date worth keeping. It's an older book now, 2005, but uh, still uh, probably a pretty good read uh, for you if you want to take a look at that. So I'm going to just glance over these as well. If that really intrigues you, take a look at, at that book and read a little bit more, and then I want us to finish off and really think through something. Um, three is, what are your career goals? Important thing to ask. What, what are your career goals? Where are you going in life now? You know, just because you're in college and they're in college doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be a perfect match for where you're going and where that person is going. Now, in saying that, I will tell you that when I met Cherie, she was headed to Africa as a missionary. I was headed to Mexico as a missionary. Those aren't even on the same continent, if you didn't know that. Um, We ended up youth pastoring in Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know, but that's where the Lord led us. But we had to talk through that and process through what that meant. If she was just locked in that this is where God's leading me, and I was saying, well, this is where God's leading me. Um, Well, we don't, they don't even have cell phones yet. What are we going to do? It just wouldn't have worked very well. We had to process through what, what God was really calling and speaking to us about. It's important to think through your career goals. What about your marriage in that? I mean, when you have kids... Who's taking care of the kids? What's that going to look like? Every couple I know, when they have kids, if they're, if they're both working, they always have to start asking, now what are we going to do? Am I going to stay home and you go? Are you going to stay? How are we going to do that? Do we pay child care here? What are we going to do? You should process through that now. If one person says, you know, hey, I'm, I'm great with you know, daycare during the day. There's a great Christian daycare. And another person says, absolutely not. We will not happen. You need to talk through those type of questions uh, as well would be really important. We talked about a God, but really your God calling. Where is God leading you and what, what does he have on your heart? Um, and what about children? I'm amazed how often when I counsel a couple two months before their marriage and I say to them, well, what are you thinking on kids? And one of them says, well, I'm really for it, and I'm, I'm, I'm just really nervous about having kids entirely. We'll just get married, and we'll, we'll figure it out. That's a rough one to figure out uh, after you're married. I mean, like, kids are like a dominant influence on your family, um, and, and for many, it's a dominant drive to want to be a mom or want to be a father, and to just say, well, you know, that's not going to work out just like, you know, well, we're not going to the steakhouse tonight. We're going to seafood instead, I guess. I'll deal with it. Uh, it just doesn't work out that way. You want to process that well in advance. Matthew six thirty three says, Give God first place in your life and live as he wants you to. When a couple's doing this, I think they answer these questions much more naturally. Here's another one Henry Cloud writes uh, for your, for your uh, reference this morning. What's it like growing up in your family? What was your family experience life? You're foolish to think you're not going to carry that into your life or have to be very intentional about what you do not want to carry into your marriage. What was your family like? He gives three key questions that he asks, and you can ask these uh, as well. We'll only spend a moment on them. Uh, Who were you closest to, mom or dad, in your life? Who were you closest to? Who was in charge, mom or dad? Which sibling were you? in your family? Like, what place were you in the family? If you had three kids, let's say, like our family setup is, uh, I have two brothers, I have three kids. You know, you have the, the older brother who's often, our older sibling who's often the achiever. You know, they achieve everything, and their, their baby book's about that thick. You know, number two, you know, number three, it's way down here. This is how it goes, you know. I mean, everything, they, oh, first sneeze, help you. Let's, you know, and it's just how it goes. 
with the first one. Second one, it carries some of these uh, uh, tendencies. They tend to be more creative, the uh, second children. We found, we found that somewhat uh, in TC. He's amazingly creative in, in what he does. Um, we also find tendencies where two is always trying to keep up with, you know, one. You know, Mr. or Mrs. Perfect up there. I got, you know, and, and two is always kind of battling it out. And then three does nothing wrong, ever. So <laughs> it's just how it goes. I was a two, um, and... I'm still like, what, what's, up? what's up with Andy? What's, he gets away with that? You know, what's going on? So, you know, and he's 40 years old now. So it's just how it goes. A question, who's in charge? Why, why is that such a, a big deal? If mom was in charge in, in your life, the way you come into marriage, that's going to affect how you see what your role is in the marriage. Same with dad. Who are you closest to, mom or dad? Young girl who's super close to dad, when she goes and gets married, guess what, husband? You better really bring it in that marriage good because you're going to be compared to how wonderful dad was uh, in that marriage. It's, it's, it's a, a good question that he asked there. Um, number five, this is significant. What are your expectations going into marriage? What's your expectations? The phrase is this, unreal expectations will cause dissatisfaction in your marriage. What is your expectation? If you didn't answer question one, if you didn't spend time on question one, and you get into question five, and you're like, well, you know, when we get married, he'll kind of come along to church, and, and he'll probably get plugged in and get involved, and, and he'll really, you know, maybe be a deacon and, and those kind of things. If you never answer that question, he's like, I'm golfing um, on Sunday, or, you know, it's football Sunday or whatever. Now, don't just think for a second that this is just the classical sense of mom comes to church with a kid and dad stays home. We are seeing this shift in our culture often to where dad is coming to church with kid and mom is um, with, with many more mom careers. Mom is doing work on the weekend in her career and dad is coming to church. There's a shift in our culture that's happening here. What are your expectations I'm amazed how many times we do a ceremony, even after marriage counseling and maybe just saying the questions properly the way the pastor wants to hear and get married, six months in, we're having a different kind of counseling and we're having a problem because there's a major communication meltdown and frustration and anger and he's on the computer all day long or she, you know, whatever. It's back and forth. And usually I turn to one who maybe is doing something that's of offense, and I say, what was your expectation when you got married in the first place? When you walked down the aisle, was your expectation is, I am really excited because in six months, we're going to be bickering like nobody's business. Um, I'm not even going to speak to her when she enters the room. Um, she's going to withhold sex from me. We're, this is going to be awesome in six months. What are your expectations? Start talking through those type of things. Because if you have unreal expectations right now, or you have expectations that you have not communicated about right now, chances are that person's thinking something different. If it's a machine, you program it, and it does. If it's another human being, then you can't have false expectations. You have to talk through. Here's the takeaway this morning. Which of these questions do you really need to consider before you say, I do? Which of these do you really need to consider for some of you, you're like, hey, I was tracking here. We were tracking here. Didn't even think about that one. Maybe that's yours. For some of you this morning, you're like, never even dawned on me to ever even think through things before. We just like being around each other. Do you know that the number one thing in the same survey I quoted on living together, the number one thing that people now say they're attracted to in the other person, number one thing, take a guess. You're allowed to speak. Oh. What would you say? I'm not guessing. Okay. It was sense of humor. Sense of humor was the number one thing. Character was number two. Are you kidding me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to base my connection and my marriedness with the number one thing, with whether they make me laugh or not? That's, that's trouble. That's trouble. Now, fortunately for Cherie, she got it in me. Uh, all the humor... See, you laughed. You laughed right there. See, I got it. Got you too. What do you need to ask this morning? What do you need to ask? Couples, 
if it's on the issue of sexuality this morning, can I just encourage you? The question you're wrestling with here, break it up right now. Break up the sexual activity even if you have to, if the only way to do it is to break up the relationship. God, it's that serious to God. Wrestle with this question and talk through it. Wrestle with it and talk through it. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? If that's your question this morning, if this morning really the real issue for you, married or not, if this real issue is I've never really solidified my commitment to Jesus Christ. I like Wendover Hills. I like coming. That was an awesome trunk or treat last night. But you've never solidified your commitment to Jesus Christ. That's the most important question, bar none, for you to answer this morning. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for uh, this this morning. Thank you for your word and that even though your word hits on issues that are, that are hard and tough and they challenge us and they push us and they even say to us, they cry out to us, go ahead and change your ways and I got something better for you. That might have been what some heard this morning or needed to receive. Father, I thank you that you are at your core an absolute loving God. You're passionate about us. You're irrationally in love with us, God. And so when you look at us, your frustration is that I love you so much and I have so much for you and you're rejecting it. So this morning I'm praying, Father, that these questions would be talked through. I'm praying that each person, especially those unmarried in here, that marriage could be part of their future, that they would be processing. Lord, there may be somebody in here right now, they're not even in a dating relationship, can't even think of somebody they're even interested in right now. This is the time for them to wrestle through those questions and ask What am I looking for? What's an absolute, what's a non-negotiable in this? She's got to love the Lord. He's got to love the Lord or I don't even, I don't even want to process them. May they do that right now. Lord, the harder thing will be for couples that are in a relationship right now and based on your word, what your word has to say, this is not Tom's word. This is your word, Lord. What you have to say, they might be living in sin. And the hardest thing they're gonna, for them to be right now is to say, we have to eradicate sin in our life, even if it meant a break in our relationship right now. If it's of God, please hear, if it's of God, you walking the ways of God will bring that union back together in the way God intended and designed it. Trust him in that area. Father, for those that are married, for those that wish they had asked some of these questions, some of those of you who might even be wrestling a little bit with regret, would you remind them that your word says there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ? If they say surrendered and committed to you and walking in you, they don't have to deal with that. You say, Father, that you, you eradicate that sin. Your word even says as far as the east is from the west. So may Satan not be able to play that trick as we talked about last week. Bless us the rest of this day, Lord. Thank you for what you've already done in this service. And we recognize that this service is really just to empower us to go out and live it throughout the week. That's where it really matters. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen.